part of the Mahaya community. He serves as the president of the Mahaya Lions Club and a coach for the softball and t-ball that his kids are a part of, as well as preaching, teaching, writing, and discipling in the church. He's married to Kara, and they have three children, Elizabeth, Peyton, and Levi. Shane, come talk to us about maturity. Not all of you will know this, and those of you who I might expect to know this might not remember it this way, but I used to own this place. <laughs> I have played in places you have not seen or been. I have been spanked in places you don't want to see or go by more people than just my parents. Uh, you might find it strange to know. I, I, this was the first church I ever went to. Uh, it was the only church we went to until I was 10 years old, and then we moved away. I had a, a sudden burst of feeling a little older than I wanted to feel when I realized I'm a few years older than my dad was when we left here, which means it's been a while. Uh, but it's wonderful to be here with you, to see some some faces that, that are familiar, you know, given a quarter century of aging in all of us. Uh, but it is really kind of a blessing to be here, and it's a bit surreal. We, we, every time I drive around San Antonio, uh, since we left here before I started driving, I always feel like I know where I am, but I can't get anywhere. Uh, uh, but it is, it is fun to be here with you, and I look forward to uh, meeting up with a few more of you uh, afterward. I do want to let you know just a few things uh, about me, just because... Uh, Either I think you might be curious, or, or maybe I'm a bit of a narcissist, like many preachers are. Uh, but as uh, Doug mentioned, uh, we live in Mahaya, and Mahaya is a town famous for being unpronounceable. Uh, there are a lot of jokes about how to pronounce Mahaya. Uh, I prefer the Mahaya pronunciation. Uh, it's somewhat sort of close to how you should say it in Spanish, uh, at least a lot closer than the other uh, ways people pronounce it. Uh, if you're, if you're, I don't know, 85 and a redneck, you pronounce it Maher. I don't know why, uh, but it's never Mexia unless you're talking to navigational equipment, um, in which case it's probably a good idea to go ahead and say Mexia. These are my two older children. Uh, they are uh, the ones we have started referring to as the easy ones, the ones that we can parent on autopilot. Uh, Elizabeth will be eight in July, and Peyton just turned five see him in his graduation picture from his preschool starting kindergarten in the fall. They're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're silly, they're best friends. Uh, we really enjoy Elizabeth and Peyton. And that's not to say that we don't enjoy Levi, uh, who is almost two years old. Uh, Levi, as you can see there, has quite a smile. He can light up a room. Um, looks a lot like I did when I was that age. Uh, acts a lot like I did uh, when I was, was that age too. Uh, so what you see there in a smile from Levi is, is, is what you get about 5% of the time. Uh, the, the rest of the time, well, this is his default expression. I, uh, <laughs> those of you familiar with different strokes, I kind of call this the what you talking about Willis uh, look. Uh, also a bit of a mischievous child. Uh, you can't tell him no uh, too often. Uh, here's a picture of Levi after Christmas after he stole not just his, 
uh, red velvet cake off the table, but his brother, his sisters, and his cousins. Uh, and he's wearing most of that. There is uh, him being caught red-handed, realizing he is not going to get away from it. And, and it, it doesn't. I mean, if there's any way to make a Super Levi costume more adorable than the red velvet cake and that expression, I think I think does the trick. Uh, but I'm here with my wife, Kara, and Kara is a, a professor at Baylor. Uh, she brings the brains and the outfit. Uh, she's why our kids have some athleticism uh, and, and probably why they have such good looks as well. Uh, but she's here with me tonight, and uh, I beg your forgiveness for not bringing our kids. We wanted to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> They're with my parents. Uh, Kara's dad is uh, a bit of a gardener. Uh, not by trade, but by hobby. Uh, I have attempted to be a gardener several times, and I never quite have the luck that he has. He's one of these guys that has a natural green thumb. Uh, I, I try to credit most of that to the fact that he lives in Houston where it rains, and they have good soil, and it doesn't freeze very often. Uh, but every time you go to his house, you go into the backyard, and it's this perfect, green, weedless St. Augustine grass that just goes on for forever. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a half acre or what, how big that backyard is, but it's beautiful and there's trees everywhere and he's got them planted and he's got them growing out of planters and out of the ground. They're marked off with these little stakes and you go back to the garden and like year round producing tomatoes and peppers and he knows I garden and he still taunts me every time he comes to see us. He brings a big box of tomatoes and peppers. You know, like I'm sure your garden didn't have any and, and then we, we utilize his tomatoes and his peppers as we look out there and I'm using, you know, as a student of Jesus, I kind of use the weeds, you know, let, let, let the crops grow with the tares kind of uh, philosophy of gardening. Uh, but anyway, he, he is a remarkable gardener, and one of the things that he does that fascinates me is he can get a tree to grow out of a planter. And, and some of you may be able to do that and might not think it's that impressive, but this is something I've tried to do, I don't know how many times, you know, take a few acorns, put some dirt on top of it, sit it outside, water it, not water it, figure out some way to get that tree to sprout. And I asked him, what, what do you do to get the tree? And, I don't know. You know I, I, plant, I plant acorns or, or, or nuts or whatever else in, in, in the pots. And it's like, well, how, how deep do you plant? Well, I plant one just right underneath the surface of the soil. Then I plant another one about an inch deep. And then I plant another one about two inches deep. And then I plant another one about three inches deep. And I said, well, which one sprouts? And he goes, I don't know, the one that's at the right depth. Uh, but that is the way that is, and let's let that serve as a bit of an introduction here uh, to what we're going to talk about tonight with the idea of planting and uprooting and maturing and, and whatever it is that my topic is. Uh, some, something, something in that range, I'm sure. Um, and I think we're technically in Ecclesiastes, but I didn't know what to do with five words, so I picked other passages, if that's okay. Uh, but acorns produce oak trees, and the way they produce oak trees is... It's in the DNA. It's all in the seed. Uh, you can plant a pecan and hope that a pecan tree comes up, but a pecan tree is not going to come from an acorn, and an acorn is not going to come from a pecan. It's the seed. It's the seed that tells the plant what it's going to be. And what Jesus says in Mark 4:26 is He tells this short parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, 
then the full kernel of the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And as much as we obsess over what we can control, it's the seed that does what is most necessary. The right soil, that matters. amount of water matters. The weather matters, whether or not it's going to freeze. There's all of these things that matter when it comes to what's going to happen with that seed, but none of them matter as much as the seed. In fact, sometimes you have plants that come up out of rock. And you look at that and you, you think there must be soil somewhere. Maybe there used to be. But somehow, some way, that seed took root and that plant has taken off. Seeds can sprout in the most unlikely of places. But they have to have the seed. And Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. And the kingdom of heaven is not just a random assortment of seeds. Like a pecan or like an acorn, the kingdom of heaven is intended to produce a very specific kind of result. Uh, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul refers to the fruits of the Spirit. These are things we, we learn as kids. There's love, there's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Against these there are no law. This is what Paul says. Because when the kingdom of heaven is planted inside of our hearts, it is intended to have a specific kind of result, to make us into a specific kind of person. That's not to say that there isn't any differentiation between one Christian and another, but when it comes to these traits, these are the kinds of things that you're supposed to see in people more and more as they come into the maturity as a child of God. But if it was that simple, we'd be talking about something else. Something about virtues like the fruit of the Spirit is that if we're just waiting for them to just start sprouting up in our lives like weeds in the garden, then we find ourselves waiting and waiting and waiting without doing much maturing at all. And one of the frustrating things about pursuing spirituality of any kind, much less Christian maturity, is that even when we set our minds on something, even when we grit our teeth and we focus and we do our best to, to just try to force our will in a direction that we know is good, sometimes we still have trouble getting traction. The question then is, is there anything that we can do that will help us to cultivate these virtues? Is there anything that we can do to help the kingdom DNA that is in the seed that was planted in our heart get out so that it can mature in us in the way that it is supposed to mature? Now, if we weren't working so hard at it, we might be able to blame it on effort. A lot of us are. We've at least gone through periods of time where we've worked on it extremely hard. And so we often find ourselves frustrated because we want to be the kind of Christian that we see in Romans 8. But we wind up looking a whole lot like what we see in 
Romans 7. A little bit more on that in just a second. But our key question there is, when is this kingdom DNA going to kick in? Make me what I am supposed to be. That's a question I've asked myself a number of times. I find myself wondering, you know, when am I going to get to the kind of point of maturity where I don't blow up at my wife or my kids over the, the smallest or littlest things, where the little anger just bubbles up and you think, where was that coming from? Certainly didn't have anything to do with them, but just came out all over them. Or when am I going to feel the kind of peace that Jesus promises and stop worrying about what tomorrow holds? And when's it going to get easier to fight all of my selfish instincts? kind that pop up when you realize that you still probably harbor a few fantasies that you're the center of the universe. Why are we stuck in Romans 7? You know, the one that does what he does not want to do and does not do what he wants to do when all we really want to become is the one in Romans 8. The spiritual person. This is generally where some discussion of spiritual disciplines comes into the conversation. On a very basic level, sometimes we're talking about prayer. Whether that's the kind of prayer that you do by yourself in the quiet or something that you do with your spouse or other individuals. Sometimes we're talking about various kinds of Bible study or devotional reading in which we are encountering the Word of God and hoping that that's going to have some kind of impact on our life. And sometimes you find that there is all manner of creative disciplines. Anywhere from fasting to doing things that don't sound much like disciplines until you try them. And then you realize that's, that's why that's a discipline that's quite difficult. When folks come to me and they ask things about spiritual disciplines, it's usually because what they're looking for is something that can get them out of that particular quandary. How do I get from this stuck place to a place where I I feel like at the very least I'm moving in the right direction? Where growth is occurring and it's happening. And one of the difficulties about starting in that place whenever you want to begin any kind of process of spiritual formation is that it it hooks into a different part of our culture that doesn't necessarily go that well with the way spiritual formation should. And I'm talking about the self-help industry. Whether you go to a secular bookstore like Barnes & Nobles or you go to your favorite Christian bookstore, you you know, Lifeway or or whatever one you go to, you'll be surprised if you take time to notice just how much of the literature, especially the stuff that's, that's on the shelves and being promoted to catch your eye as you walk in, is of this self-help type variety. And usually the only difference between what you see in Barnes and Nobles and what you see in Lifeway is somebody has taken what you saw in Barnes and Nobles and kind of baptized it by sprinkling with Scripture references and then popped it on the bookshelves at a Christian bookstore. And they're all trying to hook into this desire that we have to be better. To get unstuck. 
to get back on whatever trajectory we wish we were on or hoped we would be on at this point in our life. But spiritual discipline isn't about self-help. This idea of spiritual maturity has... There it is. Okay. Too many screens. I'm out-technologied myself. Spiritual disciplines are not intended to be tricks that you learn to expand your horizons as a spiritual person. It's not like the seven steps to becoming a better salesperson. Uh, These are not intended to be things that help you expand yourself spiritually. If, If used correctly, they have more to do with expending yourselves for the right reasons. Most of us, when we finish a day, whether it's a day of work or a day with our families or whatever else, we reach a point where we're tuckered out. Uh, where all we really want to do is veg. Maybe in front of the television, maybe with a book, but you're done having meaningful conversations for the day. Most of us know this feeling. Am I, am I right? Uh, some people you can see it on visibly. My dad is one of these kinds of persons. Uh, last night he managed to fall asleep in the Spurs game, which is uh, why we lost. I'll give you his email address later. And I'm done. I, I can't do that again. I'm, tomorrow night I'm, I'm going to do something else because I, I am too old to feel that immaturity <laughs> that I felt coming out of me last night. I'm sure I'm the only one. But spiritual disciplines are less about expanding ourselves spiritually, and they're more about training us to expend ourselves in Christ-like ways. We expend ourselves in so many directions for so many reasons. Sometimes it's to get ahead at work. Sometimes it's to make a bit more money. Sometimes it's to uh, get in the kind of relationship that we want, even with friends or people that we have a romantic interest in. We expend ourselves all of the time. But what spiritual disciplines are really intended to do is help you take that energy that you're going to usually focus on yourself. And when we focus on our families, it's just kind of a slightly less selfish way of focusing on ourselves. But it takes that energy and it starts pushing that in directions that are unnatural. That you don't come by instinctually uh, that help you start to Think in ways that are more cross-shaped. A little bit more on that phrase in just a little bit. Because this is where I want to um, get into the text for a little bit. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up to 1 Corinthians, it'll be mostly uh, there uh, toward the beginning. we get a little bit about where this church comes from in in the book of Acts. Uh, But the gist of it is that Paul, in one of his missionary journeys, founds a church there, and he stays there for around 18 months, which is longer than he stayed in most places. And because of that, he developed the kind of relationships that you can only develop if you're with people over an extended 
period of time. And they became to be a bit more dependent upon Paul than some of the other churches that he was with seemed to have been upon him. But Paul seemed to be that kind of guy that really couldn't stay in one place very long. And it wasn't long before he was off and running. But when he left, he says what, what people say all the time when they're leaving. He says, I'm, I'll be back. I'm going to come back. And when I do... When I do, we'll pick up where we left off, both relationally, but also in unpacking what it means to be someone who is growing and maturing in the image of Christ. Now, just like most of you would have been only a few months into your relationship with Christ, you don't ever really feel like you have a handle on what this is all about where you need to be going from here. And so it wasn't long before they had a whole number of questions that they wanted to ask Paul. And reading between the lines in 1 Corinthians, it seems that they took some of those questions and they sent them to Paul, and then Paul sent them a letter answering some of those questions. And everything died back down, and it was peaceful, it was fine, and the answers apparently were quite helpful to them. But more time goes by, more issues pop up, and some of them are starting to wonder if Paul's really coming back. Is Paul, who we wrote our previous letter to, and he wrote back to us, is he really coming back or has he forgotten all about us? Maybe we should take our questions somewhere else. It turned out that there was a very prominent preacher within the church at that time named Apollos who had been baptized with the Holy Spirit there in Corinth, been trained by a couple of of people there in that church, Priscilla and Aquila, and they had good inroad with Apollos. And it appears that maybe a few of the people there in that church said, we should just write and ask Apollos our questions. Apollos still stops by every now and then. He hasn't forgotten who we are. He hasn't got too big in his apostolic britches. But, others said, well, if we're going to we're going to go somewhere besides Paul. Why don't, why don't we go to Peter? Peter knew Jesus. And he spent a lot of time with him. Why, why don't we take some of these questions and some of these areas of concern and see what Peter himself would say about it? And then you have a few others going, why all this talk about Paul and Peter and Apollos? Do we not have the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Are we not Christians? Is Christ not being formed in us? Why do we have to lean on anyone but Christ for understanding? And so a bit of a dispute arose. I know we have to use our imagination uh, whenever it comes to disagreements at church. Uh, but they began to argue, who knows about what all else, but certainly about who it was that they were going to take their concerns Two, and that is where Paul seems to come back into the equation because a few people, and Paul tells us it's Chloe's people, rat out all of those who are disputing with one another back in Corinth. They go to Paul and say, there are some people who do not want to hear from you. Now Paul has an interesting dilemma because Paul wants very much to say some things to the Corinthians that not only can help them 
answer their questions that they want to ask him, but teach them some lesson that their recent dispute shows that they really need to learn. The problem is, what he really wants to teach them is that they need to be more like Christ. Specifically, they need to be like Christ who gave his life up for the church. And he's going to talk about the cross in 1 Corinthians more than he's going to talk about resurrection. We tend to think of 1 Corinthians as the resurrection book because of chapter 15. But the cross is looming over the entire book. It is what fuels all of his arguments. Everything is built upon what he calls the word of the cross or the message of the cross. And yet, if he wants them to hear that, he has to reestablish his authority as an apostle over this group. How do you do that? How do you go about establishing your authority as an apostle when you're also trying to balance that with the word of the cross? Well, the answer is what you get is 1 Corinthians. And that's probably one of the reasons that you you go back and forth between Paul seeming, wow, he seems really humble in that passage, and the next one's like, whoa, this guy's really full of himself. And in the next passage you think, man, this guy's really humble. Because he's dancing around this. Because he wants them to hear him. Paul doesn't doubt himself as an apostolic authority. But he wants to see that even as an apostolic authority, that he is one who is imitating Christ and he is inviting them to imitate Him along with Him. Alright, where am I? getting lost in all my technology here. I'm about to just give up on it. Which means you might not get all the answers to your little fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm sorry. I'm bad at that part. Alright, let's, let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. And this is where Paul, after already having kind of uh, laid down the gauntlet by saying that It is the word of the cross that you are to govern your relationships with. It's to govern over. The word of the cross is to govern over your relationships. There's a way to say that. And he says, you need to recognize that when I came to you, one of the reasons you were not all that impressed with me is because I chose to know the word of the cross Christ crucified, and Christ crucified only. I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I could be eloquent. I didn't spend a lot of time on my PowerPoint slides or any of that kind of thing. I just wanted to come in and make sure that you understood nothing more than Christ crucified. Because that is the key to understanding what He calls the wisdom of God. And that's intention with the wisdom of the world. For the wisdom of the world says that the way that you need to gain spirituality and spiritual maturation is you need to start mastering rhetoric. You need to master logic or philosophy or theology. You need to be able to talk a lot about God. To speak intelligibly in ways that people can follow 
and an understand. And Paul says, no. The only way you can possess the wisdom of God is if your life comes to resemble the life of Christ as is modeled in the cross. We come to have that mind that he calls the mind of Christ when we take up our place in that story. And what what we see here in chapter 4, verse 8 illustrates uh, the degree to which Paul has taken up this story. Now, he's speaking of himself in contrast to the Corinthians. But listen for how he speaks of himself. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Sorry. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard in our own, with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth. The garbage of the world. Right up to this moment. When you look at the way Paul describes he and his companions and what they are enduring on behalf of not just the Corinthians, but Christians everywhere. And if you were to ask Paul, why do you do that? Paul is not going to start talking about how wonderful and how spiritual he has become. He's going to refer back to the message of the cross. And how in Christ, that story has become His story. Now one of the things that can happen as a result of that kind of tale is He could become a figure that is very celebrated. We celebrate figures, whether it's Mother Teresa or people who start these these impressive inner city communities where they're doing all kinds of ministry. And we look at them and we think, wow, the world is really blessed to have people like that who are willing to see sick people. And instead of just seeing the sick people, also seeing the face of Christ and they help them. They're able to see the poor and not just wonder what in the world is wrong with the world that these people have to live in this kind of turmoil, but they find ways to do something about it. We celebrate people like that. But Paul's not interested in being celebrated. Paul is interested in being imitated. Now when you think about the specific place that Paul is going to say, be imitators of me, I urge you to imitate me, then we recognize, well, maybe that's not so narcissistic after all. 
because what he's been talking about is becoming the scum of the earth for the sake of the world. Blessing when persecuted. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what story we're a part of. And that story that trips up Gentiles and Jews alike is the very story that illustrates the ultimate wisdom of God. It looks like foolishness to the world, but it is to us who are being saved the wisdom of God. And to us who have that wisdom, we look at others who are still stuck in the self-help section of the bookstore, trying to figure out how they're going to master this aspect of their life and this aspect of their life so that their finances are in order, so that they can control their anger, or maybe so they can get past some issue of substance abuse or pornography or whatever else the issue is, and they're trying just one step at a time to reach that spiritual level of perfection Paul would say, you're wasting your time because you're tackling spiritual problems with the wisdom of the world. If you want to be wise, truly wise, then you have to have your mind tapped in to the mind of Christ. And once you have the mind of Christ, you pick up the story of Christ and you begin to live it like Paul is living it. Paul says, imitate me. Later on, he's going to say it again in 1 Corinthians. That time he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He calls the Corinthians to be his imitators, not his celebrators. So if it's true that this kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God as Mark calls it, is this seed that is planted in us, and it's the DNA of that seed that is supposed to give rise to whatever we're supposed to become. Paul is saying that that DNA is cross-shaped. And if we want to unleash our cross-shaped DNA, if we're going to do anything, we need to start practicing cross-shaped disciplines. Not the kind of disciplines that we're hoping are going to help us expand ourselves spiritually, but the kind that force us to expend ourselves on behalf of others, on behalf of the world around us, as Christ would do. These are disciplines of uprooting. The passage in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to plant and a time to uproot. And so many of the things that grow up in our lives are nothing more than weeds. And if that DNA has been planted inside of us, and that DNA is kingdom of God, cross-shaped DNA, then we can have weeds that begin to choke them out. Now, I don't think that we're going to make ourselves spiritual by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but neither do I think that God is going to take some plan for us and lay it over us and force it on us we're able to get in our own way. I am fully capable of getting in the Holy Spirit's way of what it wants to do in me, and you probably are too. And that's why these disciplines of uprooting can be so important. I threw several up there. I don't want to talk about each of them. don't have time to, and that would get windy. 
each of these disciplines that you see there, whether you, whether you know specifically what they're about or not, are, are disciplines that help us to act counterintuitively against our natural selfish instincts. And sometimes even the instincts that we have to become better can betray us. I remember a few years ago when, when Kara and I were living in Waco and were part of a church plant there, that there was a teacher at one of the nearby schools uh, who was having a heart plant valve transplant. And I had just read this wonderful book that I loved about the discipline of secrecy. I thought, how wonderful is that? To go and find good deeds that you can do and you're not going to tell a single person about what they are and you're going to let that form you because it's just going to be between you and God. I was very excited about this at the time and I thought, I'm going to mow that guy's lawn. And so I got my lawnmower out. I had my son. He was, I was staying home with them. So he was in the, uh, the stroller on their porch screaming his head off the entire time. And I'm mowing that yard. And I do that two or three times. And I decided I wasn't even going to tell Kara that I was doing this. And suddenly I realized why this was hard. It wasn't that I wanted everyone to know how good of a person I was, but I was learning things and I wanted to share those things. I was so relieved when I got caught mowing his lawn and uh, a relationship ended up uh, being built between the two of us and it was a, it was a very good thing. But this, this secrecy business works against the grain. We even see Jesus speaking about this kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount because if we really want our hearts to be formed, we have to find ways of uprooting our selfishness, our selfish desires to be known, well thought of, etc. In the end, if the kingdom of God really has the kind of DNA that is supposed to make us what God wants us to be, then what we need from discipline is not something that's going to shape us something different than we already are. We need disciplines to help us get out of our own way. To help us get out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has plans for us. It has a dream for who we can be and who we can become. But it's not the Spirit's dream that any of us would become some kind of superman or superwoman Christian. That all of us would not just take heart when we hear the word of the cross. But we would take that word and let it become our own. Let that story become our own story. Let's pray. God, I thank You for an opportunity uh, to share Your word uh, with people and with a church uh, that has meant so much to me. We pray Your blessing the MacArthur Park Church of Christ. It's in the name of Christ we pray.